Scano Sego and Ibojo Kwekwe Tanse. And good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And, you know, just before we start, I really have to tell you that I thought we were past the, uh, the cold season. But I have to admit that in the last couple of days, I've been not feeling that good. I've been feeling, you know, kind of coughing a little bit and... You know, my energy was really low yesterday. It's even lower today. And I thought, I don't remember. I thought the flu season was gone. But anyway, it seems to be not. And I've heard about some other uh, bugs that have been going around. I guess it's just, again, at that time of year, it's their last hurrah for these bugs trying to use us as warm hosts. I don't know. Is that what they use us for? But anyway, um, I'm, I'm doing the best to keep my spirits up and... Perhaps our guest today can help with that as well. I want to welcome uh, Don Maracle to the show today. Now, Don has a very interesting uh, job, among other things, uh, one of the jobs that she has, and she represents today the Kairos uh, uh, organization. And Kairos, as I, I was told from Don, is a Greek word. Perhaps you've heard of it. And it means time. Morning, Don. Welcome to the show, and thanks for being here today. Sego, Wanisirio. Good morning. How are you today? I'm well. I just told you. <laughs> you how did I just was say <laughs> it's true. Well, you know what? Uh, I say Wanisirio because it means it's a beautiful day, mm. and you know what you just described is an excellent example of a reminder for us to have a healthy respect for nature. Mm. Um, and to really appreciate the good days when we get them. Mm. So it's still a beautiful day. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to have my family here and friends and family listening and uh, and really excited about that. And so for Kairos Canada, Kairos is this Greek word and it means an opportunity in time. Mm. And, you know, uh, there was a really popular thing that happened maybe 15 years ago. People were using this, uh, I think it was Chinese symbol that meant danger, but it also meant opportunity. Mm. And what we're seeing today is Kairos is a parallel concept, right? It means an opportunity in time uh, that we can either choose to seize or not to seize. Mm. And that's where the naming of the organization came together. Well, that seems to be a very very timely name to be using on many fronts. Absolutely. And... um, are you talking about yin and, yin and yang? Is that's not what you were referring to from the Chinese, were you? No, it was it was a, like a text, yeah. um, how they have symbols and not okay. individual letters for yeah. how they uh, convey things in okay. there. Yeah. All right. Well, there's something else people can Google and find out about if they like. Yeah. Now, a little bit more information about Dawn. She's from Tayendinega, just up the lake here, and uh, she uh, she's uh, she's Mohawk, and uh, she is from that community. I know it. I've spent some time there. Uh, teaching actually a little bit some years ago, and uh, so so it's really great to have you here, Don. And the the blanket exercise is this Kairos uh, uh, um, thing that you do, which is very cool. Absolutely. And um, you have been doing this for how long with them? Almost. Well, I've been d- delivering and facilitating the exercise for almost five years now, but directly for Kairos for over two years. Now I had a. Uh, you know, I had a chance to look it over to see what you do with this. And it is very interesting. And you actually put people in some pretty uncomfortable positions by having to go through this blanket exercise. Do you want to tell people something about it? I would love to. Can I start with the beginning? 
Certainly. As a good, good Haudenosaunee, Ongwe Hongwe, Ganyangahaga woman, I like to start with creation. And um, so one of the things is we know from the Oka crisis that happened in 1990. And, you know, it's called the Oka crisis in a lot of textbook and histor- historical uh, sources. But Indigenous people call it the standoff at Ganazadage because this is a classic example of colonial naming, right? It didn't happen in Oka. It happened in Ganazadage, the Mohawk community outside of Montreal. And what we learned from that, uh, the standoff, you know, the, the massive conflict, the racial tensions, you know, a lot of Canadians understand that, have seen that iconic photo of the mm-hmm. Mohawk warrior standing nose to nose with a soldier. Mm-hmm. But most of them that I've pulled have no idea what the history is behind it. Right. So there's this visual culture without yep. the context of, of that culture. It, it seems to be the case on every uh, um, uh, and anything that happens with indigenous people in this country it's always the iconic view of either like you said the soldier and, and the, the native warrior standing face to face or you know in six nations where you got the guy standing there with the flag on top of the burning tires those kind of things it's always those mainstream Im- images that sell papers or, or grab people's attention but it's you're true. right. They don't know the context. They don't know the history behind them. It's true. And when we look at uh, what little Indigenous content we've had in education over the last 30, 40 years, um, it has been very shallow. So mm-hmm. either a very quick chronology in history class for one week, or it's visual culture. So a little bit about food, a little bit about dress, um, a little bit about what houses they live in has been part of our social studies curriculum for decades. But just visual culture without the context and importance of those things actually helps to perpetuate stereotypes because it just remains at a shallow level of understanding and not the significance of all the brilliant and wonderful and rich things that are connected to that. So to go back to the standoff at Ganesadage, what we learned from that was that Indigenous people in Canada understood our history in this country very differently than other Canadians understood our history. And there were three agreements that the the uh, Ganyangahaga, the Mohawks at Ganazadage, agreed to stand down in the end, but they had three agreements with the government of Canada in relation to that. And so one was that the, the government would never allow the town of Oka to expand their golf course onto Mohawk territory. So that was one. Two, they agreed to uh, look into the land claim, because if you know the incredible documentary by Alan Asa Bomsawin, mm. Ganazadage, 260. 70 years of resistance. Mm. And I encourage everybody to see that. If you haven't, all Canadians should Mm. have seen and known uh, this documentary because it's really powerful. It's called 270 Years of Resistance because there was a lot of stuff in the media at the time about, oh, well, why why are the Mohawks complaining now? If the land really mattered to them, they would have done something about it a long time ago. And she Mm. very strategically and powerfully shows evidence that, the, that they had been trying to get that land back for 270 years right. at that point. Now we're at 300 years yeah. nearly, just about 300 yeah. years. And unfortunately, uh, the government of Canada agreed to look into it, mm. but they've never resolved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and But they didn't agree to that part. Um, we thought it was implied at the time, but we know now that it wasn't. And of course, this has you know, strong parallels to what happened in the Caledonia situation. Absolutely. And so many other places Mm -hmm. all across Canada, right? And then the third agreement was that they agreed to a Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. And I don't know if any of the listeners remember this, but from 1991 to 1996, hundreds of Indigenous academics, professionals, elders, traditional teachers and knowledge keepers and students worked together to create a document, a massive document that had 440 different recommendations on how to address health inequities, education inequities, professionalism issues, 
how to resolve land claims in a more efficient and fair mm-hmm. manner, all, all kinds of things. And yeah. it's arguable today that possibly maybe five of those 440 recommendations were ever implemented to any degree. So if we remember the 2008 apology from the Prime Minister about residential schools, that was a recommendation from RCAP 12 years before. And the fact that we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that ended in 2015, Mm. that was also a recommendation from RCAP 19 years prior to that as well, too. And so this actually inspired a lot of people. And there were a number of coalitions and groups that got together in 1997 after the report came out. and And they had had time to read it because it was quite massive. And they said, you know, we don't want this to be just another report that gets shelved and collects dust and is forgotten that the government of Canada, again, just continues to ignore nor even though subject matter experts uh, and people who who know what's needed in their communities um, have given incredible uh, problem solving opportunities. Um, and so this had a really, really big impact. And so these different coalitions that came together, people who were interested in social justice long before it was called social justice. So people who were interested in indigenous rights and environmental rights and, and women's rights and including a number of faith-based coalitions and the Aboriginal Rights Coalition came together and said, what can we do to keep this fresh in the minds of Canadians uh, in a way that's powerful? And they created the blanket exercise. Mm-hmm. And the Kairos blanket exercise was created by Indigenous people and allies, and it's been adapted over the last 22 years by Indigenous people and allies. And our best practice is that it's delivered by Indigenous people and allies. So we have opportunities to to build relationships with each other. And we're delivering information that's difficult, but that there are people who are delivering it who have the capacity to understand and support learners who are at very, very different places. Thank you. I mean... (laughs) Nyawa for that explanation. Yeah. So um, now you've brought us up to date with this. Can you can you explain the exercise to us? Absolutely. So it's an interactive experiential exercise. So it's not academic. You know how it's been, how we've learned about Indigenous people in Canadian society has been uh, not productive, right? And so this is a method where we use blankets on the floor to represent the land in Canada. And as we walk people through 500 years of colonial history in this country and ask them to process it, not just with their brains. And this is something that we were talking about earlier that I really like to enjoy because Canadians and Western society and more of the world now is spending a lot of our lives living in our heads, only mm. processing things intellectually, but really Digital ignoring. World. That's right, and ignoring the balance of the mental and uh, emotional, the emotional and physical and spiritual aspects of ourselves. And if anybody's gone to Nathan Phillips Square at City Hall, you know the the City of Toronto sign that has the medicine wheel mm. is it's about balance, and the medicine mm. wheel provides us with an unknown number of teachings, but they're about balance, balancing those four aspects of ourselves and honoring those four aspects of of ourselves is only just one interpretation of that. Um, And so I ask people to to take deep breaths and to ground themselves and to process the information as though it's happening to them and their families. So they're processing it also with their feelings and their emotions and their spirit. And it... I would hope... Yeah, I would really hope that that's it would be done because otherwise it it doesn't uh, have the same impact. That's right. 
And in this way, when people can imagine it happening to them and their families, and actually, to, to tell the truth, a lot of people have very similar experiences. Immigrants and refugees who have come here um, are appalled because, sometimes appalled, because they say, you know, I left my country mm. um, because this was happening to me there, and I come here, and it's happening to Indigenous people. Mm. Or I picked Canada because it was it's such a great country, so great human rights and multicultural, I didn't realize um, that what they're advertising abroad is not the same as what's happening right. here. So uh, can you explain a little bit more about the actual process? So you, you, when Absolutely. you put people on these blankets, do they get to exchange positions of, of who they are? For instance, um, do you have some people as being the settlers that, coming, that are coming, and then you have other people playing the roles of Indigenous people that are on land here in Canada. Is that the idea that this blanket uh, exercise goes through? Yes. And so there's a minimum of two, and it could be up to an unknown number of facilitators. And so I often play the narrator uh, as the Indigenous person who walks people through this process. But then there's another facilitator that plays the European colonizer, because okay. not all Europeans were colonizers. Right. And they uh, they move people around, they move blankets, they hand things out to people. Um, and the people on the blankets, as they're asked to imagine that this is happening to them, they're essentially being asked to step into the role of Indigenous peoples right. and to understand how some of these processes impacted families and communities. And as we, as more settlers come, for example, um, the blankets are made smaller because they're taking up space in our territories. Sure. And we take them through a process where, uh, you know, between 50 and 250 million Indigenous people died mm. from coming into contact with the diseases the Europeans brought. And they died very quickly upon contact with mm -hmm. Europeans. Um, so a number of people are asked to step off the blankets. And as we all know, the um, there was deliberate um, um, means taken to eliminate people through the indigenous people through the smallpox. Absolutely. And I talked Which was translate, transferred via blankets. Yeah. And we know that. And that's something that we talk about in there mm -hmm. that we know from the journal uh, entries of people in government, as well as military leaders such as Lord Jeffrey Amherst, that they very, very deliberately took the blankets off of indigenous people who died, refolded them up, and purposefully re gifted them. And a lot of times these were Hudson's Bay blankets mm -hmm. uh, that were used at the time. And so we, we talk about the symbol and um, and genocide. And a lot of you know how they're Holocaust deniers. A lot of Canadians just can't believe that it was done deliberately. Sure. But there is evidence. And yeah. everything in the Kairos Blanket exercise, everything in the exercise has been vetted. Mm. Uh, we have references and supports for everything that has happened. So we, we can come very, very confidently with people and, and well prepared to be able to address those issues when we do the second part. So in the end of the exercise itself, we're left with very few blankets and very few people, which is exactly this a parallel process to what happened with Indigenous people and our lands. Mm. Because we know now that more than 99.5% of all the land in Canada has been alienated from Indigenous peoples, and very little of that was ever paid for. Yep. And so in the end, it looks like reserves, mm -hmm. these tiny, tiny little pieces yep. where a lot of people are uh, overcrowded um, and put into, um, they're squished together mm. into very small spaces. Um, and we talk about land and we talk about water, how a quarter of all reserves don't have clean drinking water. Right. We talk about violence against Indigenous women uh, and a variety of other things. And in the end, part two of the exercise is actually sh doing a sharing circle because uh, this can potentially bring up emotions for people. And we tell them that in advance to prepare them as much as possible 
possible and provide supports for them as well too. Um, that part two is the sharing circle where people can talk about how it impacted them, talk about how they processed it, or did they have a strong emotion or a strong physical reaction to the exercise? Um, and there are certain parts that that most of the time impact people like residential schools. Um, but residential schools is only the tiniest piece mm. of the rest of the exercise mm. and all the things that have happened throughout the last 500 years in this country. You know, um, one of the other one of the other things that we've talked about on this program through guests that have, uh, have come on to the show uh, is is a book. It's called Legacy, and it talks a lot about the intergenerational trauma that still exists today. And that's something I think that many people do not understand that uh, how the impact of everything that has happened to Indigenous people has had this impact uh, through generations, right. and still impacts uh, us today. What have you learned from doing this for five years and doing the exercise for five years? Well, it's interesting because uh, there's all types of different aspects, right? So uh, my both of my parents are status Indians from Tyendinaga, um, but my father was an alcoholic. He had to deal with a lot of violence and racism in, in Belleville and on the reserve, uh, mostly off reserve. Um, but even on the reserve, you know, we've been taught to, to judge who's more native because that's what the government has taught us, right? Yeah. <laughs> and even yesterday I was doing an exercise and somebody said to me, oh, I know somebody and they're 100% native. Mm. So there's still this uh, interesting thing that doesn't happen with other races. Have you ever heard somebody say they're 100% Irish or a hundred percent Jewish, right? We only use this with Native people because there's this this context that we're we're constantly being judged. And are you Native enough for on reserve or off reserve? So I'm a light skinned status Indian from off reserve who's a woman in a matrilineal culture, and so my experience is very very particular. Um, to that. And because uh, even though my grandfather, Alfred uh, Alfred Hill, was a storyteller and he, Mohawk was his language and he traveled around to different houses to tell stories on the weekends. Mm. And my grandmother spoke her language, uh, Beulah Hill. My grandfather, Leonard Miracle, didn't speak his language at all. And my dad's generation didn't because much like with my parents' generation, they thought if they just raise us as Canadians, we'd be safer we'd have a better chance of being successful as opposed mm. to dealing with the racism and oppression that they had to deal with, which right. was very blatant and often violent. Yeah. So that's your personal. What have you? What are your observations, I guess, then, from having done the blanket uh, exercise for five years? Yeah, I think I've done it more than 700 times now, okay. which has been incredible. And I've learned something new every single time. I've gotten something out of it every single time. And people who I've talked to who've done it between two and 30 times have all said they were able to get something different out of it Mm. every time. So I'm able to heal while I'm offering opportunities for other people to be to open the door to Mm. to their healing or their learning as well, too. It's powerful. Uh, it's interactive. And for me, as somebody who believes very deeply in uh, intersectional and, and multi-impacting education, so not just like for grade two curriculum, but for, for communities of people, we're being able to provide the opportunity to just open the door for people. And then we can, well, one thing that I've observed is that people want to do something right away. Mm. And that's really great and exciting. So I've got a resource list of things mm. that people can read or, or documentaries to watch, mm. uh, Indigenous people to follow on social media because it should be nothing about us without us right Mm -hmm. if you want to learn learn from indigenous people about Mm -hmm. indigenous people but i think then it's also important that we need to work on further curriculum like canadians need then to understand their privileges and their positionality because a lot of the stereotypes about indigenous people are 
because they believe that their unearned privileges uh, that everybody probably had, and that's definitely not the case. And we know with intergenerational trauma that we know scientifically it's written on our DNA mm. and it can be yep. passed down. But even if you think economically as well too, uh, people who lost land or weren't able to be educated because they were native, um, then, they're, then they grew up in poverty. Mm. Then their children might have grown up in poverty. Then maybe my generation was the first generation to go to post-secondary and we didn't have any supports from our parents in in post-secondary because they hadn't gone to post-secondary. Um, there are a lot of obstacles to education and health for Indigenous people that other Canadians don't have. And I find it really important to me because I'm very passionate about it, but powerful to be able to give Canadians the opportunity to actually know what the country really is that we live in today, not the one that they think it is based right. on media. Right. That's a good spot for us to take a break. We do have to take this pause, but we will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM with Don Miracle right after this. We're back on Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. In the studio with us today, we have Don Miracle. She is from Tayandanega, Mohawk, and uh, she is here with Kairos and, and the blanket exercise that she has been performing over the last five years is what we were just talking about before the break. But what we didn't delve into, uh, Don, was, if you don't mind sharing, a little bit about Kairos itself. How long, tell us a little bit more, is it located in Toronto? Does it have offices? I think it has offices in other cities. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, just to build on to what we were talking about before, when the, the Kairos Blanket Exercise was created in 1997, uh, Kairos itself didn't actually become an organization until 2001. Okay. But it was the same coalitions who had come together to do the blanket exercise as well as different uh, other social justice issues and projects uh, that they realized, you know, why don't we come together? Because we're all doing very, very similar work. Mm. So in 2001, Kairos Canada was born with four major pillars. There's four main pillars, and we do work on uh, mining and workers' rights, as well as women's rights, as well as ecological justice and indigenous rights. So those are the four pillars of the work that we do, and they're often there's a lot of intersectionality between all of those. And we have an office in Toronto, which is the main office, as well as we have an office in Ottawa. And then we have a number of Indigenous workers who work all across the country who are supporting the Kairos Blanket Exercise in different provinces and territories. Do you know much about why Kairos came to be? And what I mean by that is it's interesting that what you were doing um, and with the blanket exercise that has been going, and then this, this organization sort of sprouted up, or at least people were doing the same thing. It's interesting. I'm just, I'm, do you know more about that? Um, it's, I mean, ultimately it comes down to the fact that these different coalition and groups of people had been meeting, uh, for many decades in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties, uh, working on different rights-based issues. And, uh, in the eighties, I think there was a documentary done by, you know, one of our, one of our managers, Ed Bianchi worked on the Lubicon. Remember that there was Mm. a big documentary about the Lubicon Mm -hmm. and, uh, and issues there. And as people just started to wake up. Uh, to these different issues across the country. Um, people who kind of kept seeing each other over and over and over in all these different capacities realized that there were ways that they could work together and support each other's work. And those are the principles on which Kairos is based. Okay, thanks uh, for that. Thanks for that explanation. Now you have some other things you you just mentioned that you also want to talk about. So where would you like to start? Um, why don't we start with uh, indigenous women and the impact of mining and, sure, and yeah. resource extraction. Does that sound good? Sounds great. 
Okay, so Kairos, uh, both in their gender justice as well as in their indigenous rights capacities, um, work with partners in Canada, across Canada, with indigenous people across Canada, and with partners in the global south all across the world to make visible the particular impacts of resource extraction on indigenous women, as well as indigenous women's unique role in defending community rights and defending peace-based processes. So we know that when women are involved in peacemaking processes in every official capacity, that uh, peace processes are actually considerably higher, uh, have a considerably higher chance of lasting more than 15 years. Uh, When women are withdrawn from that process, uh, peace processes, even though treaties are signed and agreements Mm -hmm. are made, they don't tend to last very many years without women. And so this is something Haudenosaunee people have known for a long time. You know, there is balance in Mm -hmm. in leadership between uh, women clan mothers and mm. chiefs who mm-hmm. work together, mm-hmm. uh, both as speakers and as knowing what their people need and want and are interested in. And, uh, you know, another example is in the States, you know, their constitution, if you take their constitution, they pulled exact quotes out of Haudenosaunee or Six Nations speeches yep. and used them directly. But what they did was they removed the women mm. and they added guns. <laughs> So just think about that for a second. They removed the women from the processes and speeches and they added guns and that tremendously changed. So even using a lot of the same language on, you know, this matrilineal culture of mine, which is very equal. Everybody is valued equally Mm. and just has different roles and responsibilities um, to think of how that significantly increased and shifted American things mm-hmm. um, and their how they worked today, which I'm not going to touch on at this point in time. But we know that women being involved in peacemaking processes is very, very important. And Kairos's work on the gendered impacts of resource extraction is so. One example is we know that whenever there are mines or resource extraction, where workers, usually male workers, are brought into those spaces, violence against Indigenous women all over the world increases. And this is something that. We know, but now we need to start doing stuff about it. So it's not just about doing resource, you know, working towards reconciliation and creating uh, a better uh, experience for Indigenous women and women all across the world is that we need to be able to start addressing those issues. So educating, changing standards, um, making uh, societal change so that violence against women is no longer accepted no longer tolerated and actually starts to to be addressed in a more severe way. But uh, as we both know, it's the it's it's the, the issues, the core issues that are affecting. As you just mentioned about how the the, ma- the men that are brought into work on the on extracting and and how these things are set up, it's it's it goes beyond just trying to uh, just say we need to change this because it's those situations that are creating those Absolutely. environments. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I I am biased because my context is being a Mohawk woman. And Mm. so sharing that from from the beginning, from our culture, is uh, we had longhouses Mm. and men moved into the longhouses of the women because it's a matrilineal society. So we get our clans from from the women, Mm -hmm. from the mothers. Um, And so violence against women was not tolerated at all. Period. Mm-hmm. But when it did happen, and if it happened more than once, and if the person was warned and it happened again, they would be ejected from the longhouse and actually from the village, from the community, um, to be very, very clear and very serious about the reality that that was absolutely unacceptable behavior. Um, and 
So take that and juxtapose that against the patriarchy of, you know, Europeans who came here uh, hundreds of years ago and the laws and realities of, you know, women not being able to be educated until recently. Um, you know, only men could be leaders and be in charge of things and, and how that's still very, very pervasive in our society. So patriarchy and then you add colonization um, because when Europeans first came here, they knew that they needed us for their survival. And as part of our deeply held and practiced philosophies of kindness and generosity, we helped them survive. We uh, shared our space with them. We created treaties with them, which very clearly outlined how we would share the land and environment and how we would share in our relationships with each other. Um, but at once they there were more of them than us, and they started to realize in their worldview that land was something that could be bought and sold and treaties um, unfortunately, became a tool that they realized they could use to manipulate us. They started to separate us, right? And where reserves were born, where the Indian Act was born in the late 1800s, they realized that by separating us, putting us on reserves, means it was easier to manipulate the Canadian public. Divide and conquer. And teach them that, you know, what was wrong with Native people was Native people, Mm -hmm. not the systems Mm -hmm. uh, put in place to create poverty, Mm -hmm. to not have clean drinking water, to live in a very, very small space, to have somebody there, like the Indian agent, um, Mm -hmm. to stop us from Mm -hmm. being able to leave the reserve. Um, All these systems that were in place to stop us, which still exist today from having the same level of education Mm -hmm. as everyone else. So all of these systems in very complex ways but also simply could be simply understood as well too, have created a Canadian consciousness. I always find that really interesting. This is a bit of the academic in me, but I look at all of the documentaries out there on Hitler and Hitler's propaganda. Mm. Um, and people think that Canada's nice and they don't realize that Canada has also had propaganda as well too. Um, and this What's really interesting is we also know from social science that um, when negative things are said about somebody, it takes at least eight positive things to counteract Mm. that negative messaging. Um, So I think Canada has a long way to go to change and shift its messaging about Indigenous peoples and to um, there's residue on these negative things that were said hundreds of years ago Mm. that a lot of Canadians unfortunately still believe. But I agree with Murray Sinclair. Education got us into this mess and Mm. education can get us out. Right. Yes, well said. Okay, um, that's one of the points you wanted to bring up. Uh, why don't we talk about truth and reconciliation then, because you've uh, you kind of brought that up. So, Absolutely. Um, it was really exciting, I remember, when the uh, TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Process, started. So it ran from 2009 to 2015 is when the reports came out. And uh, as I poll people when I do Kairos Blanket exercises across the country and in other countries as well, too, uh, but primarily in Canada, that very few people have heard of the TRC in Mm. Canada, which Mm. surprises me. It only happened in 2015. Uh, There was tons of media and social media around Mm. it. And yet still most Canadians, I would say less than 10 percent of anybody in any of my exercises has ever heard of it. Um, And so we've got a long way to go on that. So basically the TRC process was looking at interviewing, researching the history of residential schools, what happened um, and residential school survivors and their stories and sharing that. And in the end, it also came up with 94 calls to action. Now, these calls to action are for all Canadians. So it differs from RCAP, the Royal Commission, which had recommendations, right, which were mostly ignored by the government because there was the recommendations were to the government. Uh, The 94 calls to action for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process uh, differs because 
94 calls to actions are for all Canadians. And Marie Sinclair asked all Canadians to look at this list of calls to action, find ones that resonated with them. And even if they just started with talking about one at their kitchen table, they could start to change how how we talk about Indigenous people, how we understand Indigenous issues. And, uh, and I believe that this is a really, really important issue. And so the calls to action 62.1 specifically addresses the fact that there should be Indigenous content in every single grade from kindergarten to grade 12. Not just a little bit in social studies in grade 6, not just a little bit in grade 7 history, um, but that it should be embedded throughout. We can look at really positive examples like in New Zealand where there's been Maori content at every level of education for decades now. And this goes right through university. Uh, one of my favorite jobs I ever heard of when I, uh, when I was attending Trent University for Native Studies was Graham Smith was the chancellor of Auckland University. And his job was to make sure that there was Maori content in every single course, in every single program at the entire university. Mm. And that was really exciting. Um, a lot of people don't realize the relevance and importance of understanding um, where we live and understanding the history of where we live and the people uh, who belong to where we live today. Mm. Um, this has had an incredible impact on all kinds of things, politics, language, because mm. there's bilingualism in New Zealand. And while that's more d- difficult in Canada because there's so many Indigenous languages here, mm-hmm. it's not homogenous like right. like in New Zealand. Um, E4R, so Education for Reconciliation, is a program that Kairos has within the Indigenous Rights Program. And it's to urge and support and challenge all the provinces and territories in Canada to make sure that there is Indigenous content in every grade from kindergarten to grade 12. And we are also, we have an elementary version of the Carlos Blanket exercise, which can also be shared, and a youth version, which can also be shared at high schools Mm -hmm. as well, too. Now, you mentioned chancellors, and I know that uh, at least two universities have just... uh I've just named Indigenous uh, chancellors. Really? Yes. Great. McMaster University. uh, And I'm sorry, I forget the other one. I think it might be out out west. But yes, I do know that two people have been uh, given the position of chancellors of those universities. That is wonderful. And I would love to be able to do the work, to do that similar kind of work and to see even more. So Mm. that's really great. But it needs to be uh, work that is valued and not just tokenized. Mm, Of course. And, you know, we have a friend. She was an honorary witness to the TRC, Sheila Rogers, Mm. uh, who does, who has worked with the CIBC. I think her social media account says that she's worked with with CBC forever. Mm. (laughs) Um, And... uh, she is an ally. She's a true ally, right? So she's not Indigenous, but um, it's not just tokenized. And she's a very deep person who works on very deep levels with people. Um, and an ally to me is somebody who walks alongside Indigenous people and mm. amplifies our voices, mm. right? Because we know what we need, but we need more resources to get there. And that could be voices. It could be connections and networks. It could be all types of things like that. Um, so I'm really, really happy to hear about that. Mm. But the question then becomes, so what kind of work are they going to be doing and how mm. are they valued? Sure. Yeah, of course. that's great. Uh, you just mentioned allies and, and walking with. And of course, that makes me think of the two row wampum and uh, the whole idea of walking together or, or going down the river together into uh, one in a boat, one in a canoe and, and uh, living that separate lives. But 
allies, I guess you might say. That's absolutely right. And, you know, the, the first Turo Wampum was signed with the Dutch over 400 years ago, and then the other one uh, reiterated with the English. And uh, and it, it has been reiterated many, many times. So the covenant chain is another concept mm. that's a parallel to the Turo Wampum that reiterates our relationship with each other. And what that means is that the Turo Wampum talks about how we're reacting in in the environment, so going along each, alongside each other in mm. the river, um, but that we're also not interfering in each exactly. other's affairs. Yep. We believe that we could both be experts in our own mm. lives and areas. And unfortunately, that hasn't really been exactly. honored here, yep. despite the fact that with the covenant chain, which is the same thing, um, but it means that people have come together to restate that relationship over and over and over again. And I love the concept of the covenant chain because instead of using two rows representing the in- Indigenous people, the Haudenosaunee and the newcomers, it has two circles. Uh, Mm -hmm. like a silver chain. Mm -hmm. And the idea is you can't just sign a treaty and walk away. It's a relationship that you need to constantly be working at. And if you don't, the silver tarnishes. So we've got to take it out from time to time and polish it. it And that's what Canada needs right now. Mm -hmm. We need to be building our relationships, renewing our relationships uh, by polishing, Mm -hmm. by polishing that. Mm -hmm. And most Canadians don't know what our responsibilities are to the various treaties where we live. And so if we can share that in a peaceful and kind way with each other, we can find ways to work to each other that's actually to work together that's helpful for everybody. You know, the other thing you mentioned uh, in terms of the truth and reconciliation and uh, the calls to action, uh, the other thing I think about that I think is 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 uh, happening within many institutions is the the establishing of these uh, indigenous education councils that are meant to help with those processes of getting that content into the schools and getting that awareness built without within the education uh, system through direct contact in each school. That's right. And they've been around for quite a number of decades. So uh, they used to be called Aboriginal Education Councils. Mm. Now they're Indigenous Education Councils. And I've been involved with them at a variety of institutions since the 90s. And it's good that they have that because they've helped to fund the first uh, bits of curriculum, like you were saying, but also to hire the first few Indigenous professors. Mm. Um, But there are fallbacks to that funding as well, too, because it's very dependent on the government and uh, ongoing funding that's provided. And there are two main parts. I used to be the post, uh, the national chair of the post-secondary education working committee between AFN and uh, Indian Affairs mm. at the time, and uh, there's two programs: the ISSP, which is the institutional funding for places like First Nations Technical Institute, mm. Tyneton and other Indigenous post-secondary institutions, um, and then the other funding is for uh, Indigenous or status Indians to be able to go to college and university. Right. And I see in the new budget that they've just provided a slight bump up for mm. funding for Indigenous students to be able to go to university. But let's let's address the falsehood. In, indigenous people do not go to education for free. They don't get post-secondary right. for free, and this is an absolute falsehood. Yes. And actually, Indigenous students have, have historically gotten less money for post-secondary yep. than all other Canadians who apply to OSAP and Canada Student Loans, because they have uh, formulas built in that uh, go up every year with inflation. And also, if you're going living in a big city, you get more funding than if you go to a small city. And yet the uh, post-secondary education program for uh, status Indians in Canada has not changed since 1989. And and this is a really big, a really big problem. And yet 
another one of those obstacles to education for Indigenous people as well. So however, those Aboriginal or Indigenous Education Councils are really important. And they make sure uh, at every uh, college and, and university where we have them that there's interdisciplinary leadership so that there are people from the Métis Nation of Ontario uh, or different other provinces. There's people from Inuit groups. There's people representing Status Indians or the AFN. And then there's always students involved as well, too. So it's not just, it's a very community-based grassroots process of being able to ensure there's more content. Um, however, there's fallbacks. And, and, you know, one fallback is that uh, there's a university I worked for a number of years ago that didn't fund Aboriginal student services because they were like, oh, well, you have that other money. Mm. But yet they fund every other department in the university. And so we need to stop limited thinking like that and start using it to enhance processes and services because when everybody has access to Indigenous content in their programs and and professional programs that we all win. We Mm. all understand more about where we live and that, that helps everybody. Good spot to take another break. We have to take this pause, but we will be right back on Moment of Truth after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, anywhere across Canada, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 95.7 ELMNT. FM or 106.5 ELMNTFM, and you can listen on your device across Canada or on also on our website anywhere around the globe. Today on the show, we have Don Miracle, and she is from Tayendinaga, and she is a Mohawk, and we've been talking about quite a number of interesting things. Uh, Kairos uh, organization that she is involved with, and uh, a blanket ceremony that she has. Uh, performed for over five years and also, I think she said, about 700 times. Now, that's interesting, Don, in itself, because I'm just wondering, 700 uh, presentations of this blanket ceremony that you've done, what would you guess are the number of people that have participated in that time? Oh, that's a great question. I do want to say, though, that it's an exercise, an not exercise. a ceremony. So we've been advised Did I by... Did uh, Yes. Did I say Yes. Uh, it's, it's, there are elements of it that are sacred, like mm. the sharing circle, but it's, uh, it's not a ceremony. And the elders on right. our elders' council make sure Correct. that, that or, or our advisors tell us to make sure that it's not mm. a ceremony. Um, right. So anyway, that aside. Thank you for correcting me. Well, one, the largest one ever that we did was in Thunder Bay okay. in August. And yep. that was really incredible for a youth conference. And we believe there was about 850 people there. So that was just one of the ones <laughs> that I have facilitated that I've been, that I've had the honor to be able to co-facilitate, which has been really amazing. Um, so it's absolutely thousands of people. I've never sat down to figure out the number, but definitely I've, I've been able to uh, provide and share this knowledge with thousands and thousands of Canadians. You were also saying there's a difference in the blanket exercises in terms of a youth one, as you pointed out. Yes. So how do they differ? How do they differ? So we have an elementary script uh, for grades four to eight Mm -hmm. and then a youth script for high school. Uh, There's the standard adult script. The script for mass blanket exercise, mass Kairos blanket exercises is for 100 or more. So that's a slightly shorter script. And we also have a health version for health professionals as well, too. And then I wanted to share really quickly internationally. Mm. So because this is such a powerful process, Mm. the framework of the exercise, we've actually been able to adapt to different countries and different colonial concepts. Mm. So we're working with a group in Guatemala 
um, and starting to talk to other groups in the global south. It was done in Rwanda 10 years after the genocide. Mm. Um, We're working with three different groups in Australia right now, talking to a group in Ireland. Mm. um, And there are many American versions. So, for example, this weekend I'm going to Buffalo with my colleague Alfredo Barona. And we are going to work with some Haudenosaunee groups of people at the cultural center there to train facilitators. And so the American version is different than the Canadian version. And so while some of the concepts are very, very parallel between Canada and the States and really in other countries as well, too, the different events that happened have changed, uh, are, are different. And so we work with all of these groups to, p- to be able to adapt a, a version that suits their local realities and histories, um, but to m- make sure that the integrity of the exercise and the framework of it remains intact so they can continue to have a very powerful experience there as well, too. Mm. And so the elementary and youth versions are, of course, shorter um, and don't contain um, as many of the heavier pieces. And it's kind of like you can build on those. So if students have access to the elementary version, they're going to get a bit more than if if it happens again in high school. And I tell people, because of what's been reported to me, if you have the opportunity to do it more than once, please do. Mm. And my daughter, Degarini Gonnery Miracle, actually co-facilitates with me. She has co-facilitated with me quite a number of times, and and she's very good um, at helping. And I think involving youth is a really important aspect of this as well, too. For sure. To carry it on and... and, uh help with the, uh, she may be facilitating herself one day, perhaps. I think so. So I want to uh, just come back again to to what we were saying just before the break. Uh, you were talking about education and the the, um, the thought that uh, many Canadians believe that Indigenous people get free education. Yes. And, of course, there's also uh, the the false assumption that, that Indigenous people don't pay tax or... And and when we hear news stories, sometimes we hear this is costing Canadians or it's costing the government X amount of millions of dollars to implement this or to do such a such a thing for Indigenous people. Right. And I, I think that what we, we need to and it goes back to what we need to try and make people aware of is that the treaties, the, the, the signed agreements, there were, you know, most and in many cases, what that dealt with was. Indigenous people handing over the land and resources. Right. And in exchange, right, it wasn't in, you know, it wasn't for free. It was supposed to be an exchange. And the exchange is that Canada and people got the benefit of reaping the, the, the rewards of the resources from the land and the minerals and all these other things. But there were responsibilities of the government and Canada to, to, uh, to the Indigenous people. And so this this cost that people are referring to, it's part of the agreement. It's part of what should be and should have been looked after. Yes, but it's also very biased and limited um, based on what Canadians have had the opportunity to learn so far uh, in our systems, in our society and in in our educational system as well, too. Uh, So, for example, uh, when they're saying, you know, X number of Native people living on reserve aren't Mm. paying income tax, therefore it's costing Canadians this many millions of dollars. And then so politicians make decisions based on that, maybe, oh, maybe I could save a few million dollars on something Mm. without having any understanding uh, of the context Mm -hmm. involved. And really that narrative needs to be flipped, right? It needs to be flipped to 
uh, exactly what you said, the treaties. So let's start with the treaties and the original relationships. We agree to share land with the newcomers in exchange of living in peace, um, sharing the resources, which means Indigenous people should have had the same access to the same quality of all the resources uh, as everybody else. And we know throughout the history of Canada that hasn't happened. Um, so we need to flip it back to um, actually Canadians have benefited mm-hmm. um, trillions yeah. of dollars right. over hundreds of years from the resource extraction that has not been shared with Indigenous right. peoples. Um, because uh, other than Indigenous peoples in Canada, other citizens living here have greater access to education. Um, so they're, they are actually uh, gaining a larger percentage of funds. Um, so what needs to be shared, and we do this in the Kairos Blanket exercises, we show that less money is provided to Indigenous children in care. So that means uh, the spectrum of at, at risk of being apprehended throughout the apprehension process, foster care adoption. And less money is provided to Native Child and Family Services mm. than it is for provincial and territorial child and family services. And then the secondary funding formula is less money is given per head, per child, per Native child, than mm. is for all the other children in all the other provinces and territories. And the Government of Canada has been ordered uh, numerous times in 2015 to pay $280 million to equalize the systems mm-hmm. so that all children would have the same support and resources available they're vulnerable children who are at risk and or already in the system. And then to add insult to injury, we know now that there are three times as many Indigenous children in care than at the height of residential schools. Yeah. So while Canadians are appalled that residential schools happening, a new form of that continues to happen. Yeah. And so what happens historically, if you look at the last hundred years, as residential schools started falling out of favor, the 60s scoop happened. Mm. And so first of all, I should say they shouldn't be called residential schools because education was not the primary focus. Right. They were institutions. Yep. Um, so as they started falling out of, out of power and popularity, the 60s scoop happened. And that's also not properly named because the height of it was uh, 1955 to 1989 was one of the first pushes. Mm. And then uh, it actually started in the 30s and it's actually still happening at a higher rate than ever. So Mm. we actually should be calling this the millennial scoop Mm. because it's happened over the last millennium, really, Mm. Mm. um, where Indigenous children are taken at a higher rate. And this is because of systemic bias, um, unconscious bias, and lack of funding and supports for Indigenous people. So the narrative needs to be changed by journalists as opposed to um, Indigenous people on reserve not paying taxes. Um, It should be switched to in the other direction. And also that's a fallacy as well too because most indigenous people pay income tax Mm -hmm. just like everybody else there's only a select few who work on reserve live on reserve and are paid through reserve Mm -hmm. so a very very small percentage of our indigenous population here in canada are actually tax exempt and uh, from my understanding that wasn't even something that an indigenous person had anything to do with about that tax exemption of reserves i think it was set up by uh you know the people at hand at the the time during that uh, during that that negotiation. Yes, and I wanted to add one more thing too. What's important for Canadians to understand is that a treaty is a nation to nation agreement. So the fact that we have three hundred numbered more, more around three hundred numbered treaties and even more treaties that have names, not numbers, that hundreds of times in the history of this country we've had treaties, which are nation-to-nation agreements. So that means there was an absolute acknowledgement that the Indigenous nations who signed these were equivalent and equal to the nations that signed. So equal to the English, equal to the Dutch, equal to the French. And that has not continued. 
Um, and that shouldn't actually be a thing um, because one side can't just decide that they're not going to consider us equals anymore. But yet that is exactly, unfortunately, what has happened here in Canada. Now, we have a little bit of time left, so uh, we've uh, almost used up our hour, Wow! which is wonderful. And uh, I want to just say anyawa for you coming in, too. But, but you yeah. wanted to talk about UNDRIP. Is there something quickly you could Yes, very that? quickly. Uh, I don't know how many Canadians out there know, but there's this thing called the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples with the unfortunate acronym UNDRIP. Mm. And it's, this was an agreement that was worked on internationally for more than 20 years and approved by the United Nations in 2000. 2007. And UNDRIP is a minimum standard to ensure that Indigenous people around the world survive and thrive. Now, first of all, isn't it terrible that we need a document to make Mm -hmm. sure Indigenous people around the world survive? Mm -hmm. But we do need it, Um, not just here in Canada, but in many other countries around the world. And in 2010, Canada signed on. But I remember the Minister of Indian Affairs at the time saying, uh, you know, we're signing on, but it's with caveats according Mm -hmm. to our own laws in Canada. And it's my job to support, to make sure that Canadians are safe. Right. Which was preposterous at the time, right? However, in 2016, uh, down in New York at the UN, there was a statement made by the then uh, Minister of Indigenous Affairs that uh, Canada accepted UNDRIP fully and completely without caveats in 2016. Mm. Um, But doing it in name is not doing it in action. And unfortunately, there's a lot of other international declarations that Canada has signed on to and then ratified. And ratifying it gives it the power of law. Mm. But they've never ratified UNDRIP. Mm. Mm. So uh, Romeo Saganash came forward with a private member's bill a couple of years ago called Bill C-262, which basically says that all the laws in Canada should be in alignment with UNDRIP, which again is only a minimum standard. So it's really not much ask for. And um, it passed all three readings in the parliament as of May of last year. And it's now at at last I heard it was at the second reading with the Senate. Now, this is really urgent. And I encourage people to go to the Kairos Canada website. So if you Google Kairos, that's K-A-I-R-O-S Canada. And Bill C-262, if you Google that, it'll take you straight to our page. And we have a letter, if listeners are interested, that they can send to the senators because we want to urge senators to make sure that this gets addressed now. Uh, they only have a few more days that they're sitting, a few more days that they're between now and June that they're actually voting. And unfortunately, private members' bills take backseat to government-sponsored bills. So if, uh, say, uh, certain parties or individuals filibuster, they can run out of time to be mm-hmm. able to address this. And we know that whenever there is an election, that all the bills that are in existence get wiped out and we have to start all over again. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to urge all Canadians, if you care about Indigenous people or Indigenous rights, um, if you care that people are treated fairly in this country, and if you care that at the very, very minimum that Indigenous people in Canada survive, um, this bill is very, very important just to be able to, to give us the teeth to be able to make sure that laws in Canada are no longer harmful to Indigenous peoples. Right. Okay, well, now we have very little time. We're hoping to get to a song, perhaps, but we're not going to get there because you have one other thing to talk about. You have an upcoming event, I believe, in the Atlantic area. Yes, just very quickly, Kairos Canada, so it's K-A-I-R-O-S Canada.org, is having an upcoming Atlantic gathering. So this is in Sackville, uh, New Brunswick, 
at Mount Allison running from May 2nd to 5th. And if people are interested, we're going to be running a number of streams. So the streams that support all of our pillars. So we're going to have an Indigenous rights stream where people can sit and talk um, and learn about what's happening, but also connect with people in the Atlantic. Uh, We're looking for intergenerational people. We're looking for youth because we want to hear from youth more and more as we move forward because youth have a lot of power, a lot of voting power and really strong voices. Uh, They're more educated than we had the opportunity to be at the same age. And uh, it's there's also ecological rights, women's rights, and there's also a stream specifically for the Kairos Blanket Exercise as well, too. So people can go to kairoscanada.org, and right on our front page, there's information about our Atlantic gathering. You want to give out that uh, website once more? So it's www.kairoscanada.org. So you can go there and you can find out more information about the Kairos and uh, also about what Don is up to and uh, learn about the things that they are involved with. It's been wonderful having Don Miracle on the show today. I want to say Nyawagoa for coming in. Yep. And I wish you all the best in the future. And I hope we can uh, have you back on the show for more information coming up in the future. I would love that. All right. Thanks for listening. And make sure to listen in again to Moment of Truth right here on Element FM.